Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. We take to the oceans to try and analyse and understand how populations change over time. Now, creatures in the ocean can be really difficult to keep tabs on, whether it be trying to figure out the age of a crustacean and date a lobster, which can be much harder than you think, to how we can track populations over time and figure out how they can be so similar and yet so different, despite huge differences. When you're young, counting your birthdays, counting your age is a pretty easy thing. But then you run out of fingers on your hands, more and more things happen, you go through school and all of a sudden, once you're in your 20s and 30s and beyond, well, age can become a bit difficult to keep track of. You, you might actually forget how old you are or think you might be younger or older by miscounting the years. Maybe you use a reference marker like a particular event or a graduation, or something other important in your life. as a good way to remember exactly how old you are. could be somebody else's age to use as a reference marker. These are all ways you can sort of keep track of your own age if you didn't want to do the mental arithmetic to subtract the current year from your birth year, which, let's be honest, nobody has time for. Now, that's for humans. It's difficult enough for us to keep track of our ages. But we at least have rigid milestones and good timekeeping, which enable us to actually track it down. When it comes to animals, though, tracking the age can be a lot harder, mostly because it's a really difficult thing to do from species to species. But knowing the age of something is really important for understanding a creature's ecology, evolution, and enabling us to guide its conservation. If you aren't able to adequately assess how many creatures of a certain age or growth in a certain year, you can't really get a feel for the population of a species or an ecosystem. So, age of creatures is really important for us to understand how healthy an ecosystem is and how we can better conserve it. Now, there are some creatures which are harder to age or date than others, and we're going to talk about a paper published in the journal Evolutionary Applications by researchers from University of East Anglia, including Eleanor Fairfield, David Richardson, Carly Daniels, Christopher Butler, Ewan Bell, and Martin Taylor. Now, what they were diving into was the difficulties of dating lobsters. And this all stems from the fact that crustaceans in general, and particular lobsters, have an unusual growth pattern. One that makes them incredibly difficult to try and put an age on. And this is even more challenging when we know that crustaceans, and particular lobsters, can live for an incredibly long time. But how long, and exactly the details of them, Well, if we don't know how to date their ages, well, we can't keep track of it. All we know is that there are crustaceans out there and potentially lobsters that are centuries old. That's terrifying, but also something we suspect but can't really prove. So these researchers looked for a way to use a new tool to try and analyse and see how we could better date crustaceans, in particular lobsters. And the angle they were coming from is finding ways to help better manage the fisheries, in particular the European lobster fisheries, in European Union regions because they know that it's an economically important species. A lot of people like to eat lobster and lobster is a commercially important crop for the region. So understanding how many lobsters are in the region, how to keep those populations healthy and strong requires, as I said, knowing their ages. But coming back to the science of it, how can you actually test a creature's age? 
Now, as we talked about before, there's a couple of tricks you could use to guess the age. If you have tracked something over a long-term study with markers, then okay, that's one way to get something's age, but that's more or less cheating. You've just followed that creature for the entire length of its life, thus knowing its age. Whilst that works, that's not necessarily applicable for the rest of the population. Now, some animals exhibit physical features that correlate with age. You can look at something like fish otoliths, and you can see that they have growth rings on them, much in the same almost that trees do. Bivalve shells or the tooth length in deer, you name it. These are all characteristics that change with age. But even then, not all animals have characteristics like that. And in order to build a model to correlate that feature with a specific good age range requires a lot of samples and a lot of data. So it's not really necessarily a practical tool for many species, especially ones that aren't easy to get to or are incredibly long lived. Now, scientists have started to look at ways to use molecular markers of aged because it could be an affordable, accurate, and importantly, really non-lethal and invasive which when you're trying to measure something's age, doing so in a way that doesn't involve dissecting it is normally a preferred option. Now, the way molecular methods work is they measure a feature of an individual's DNA or RNA, or perhaps one of the other associated molecules, and then they track changes consistently over time. It can be used to track basically that particular marker. And another example of that is like the telomere length. Now, the telomere length can decline throughout the life of a species, starting off long and then gradually changing. And that's a type of genetic marker you can use and track. The problem is, it's not necessarily consistent across all animals, and, and there's a lot of environmental and genetic factors that go into play about changing the lengths or the degradation rates of telomeres, which make it not really the best, most widely applicable mechanism. And so when we come to wild creatures, it's not really well used or shown to be useful just yet. Now, another method could look at the actual DNA itself, in particular DNA methylation, where methyl groups are added to the DNA. Now, there's a couple of different types where you can look at this and you can see a gradual decline or change in their methylation rates, depending on the age of the creature. Now, this has been seen not just in one creature, but actually in a few, in many different taxa, from fish to mammals to mussels to invertebrates, you name it, even some birds. So age-related decline in global DNA levels of methylation is a pretty useful tool, it's often called epigenetic drift, to track the age of a creature. Problem is, you still need to build a model to calculate this tick rate, this methylation rate differing across the creatures of that sort of species. But it is an idea of using basically an applicable model that could be applied to lots of different species. So like with any good model, you need to train that data set. And that means you need to have really good genomic information on lots of different species to build up that model and see how it can be transposed from one creature to another. So not really that useful unless you've gone to the level of, of getting that detail for a lot of creatures. Now, what they've turned to now in this particular method is using ribosomal DNA, our, our DNA. And the reason why that was chosen is because across lots of different taxa, from mice to zebrafish, you'll actually see a pretty good overlap in certain types of our DNA. 
And that's important because if it's a sort of a consistent trace marker spread across lots of different taxa, then that makes it really easy to use as a basis for your model. Because if a lot of creatures have this, you don't need to build a detailed genetic map of each of these creatures. You can make some certain assumptions and shortcuts. So that's more or less what these researchers were trying to apply to aging crustaceans, which is good because for a long time, researchers thought basically that lobsters and crustaceans were almost impossible to age. Now, maybe you could, as researchers like Dr. Martin Taylor stated, you could count the rings in parts of their eye stalks and stomachs, a bit like counting tree rings. But as we said, you can't do that to a living lobster. And as Eleanor Fairfield points out, a PhD researcher who discovered this method, she said that lobsters have hard and inelastic shells, and so in order to grow a new one, they must shed their old and replace it with new one. However, lobsters of the same age don't always grow or molt at the same time. And this is really shows the difficulty of trying to use the traditional methods. Basically, there's so many environmental factors that could lead to changing growth rates. And you lose all those markers when that shell is molted away. So by developing a new non-lethal method, by looking at the RNA changes in the lobster over time, it gives the researchers a non-lethal tool that's reasonably accurate to actually study and track the ages of the lobsters in their region. Now, to prove this model, what they did was take lobsters raised from eggs by the National Lobster Hatchery. And they took these because they know the exact ages of these creatures. And as they age, they could check the changes in their DNA, particularly the RDNA, over time. And what they found was a very strong relationship between age, physically, to real-world age, and the DNA modifications. That enabled them to basically estimate the age of individual lobsters. Now, then they applied this method to wild lobsters and predicted ages that generally aligned with the size-based or old-school-based methods of guessing. A lobster's age. Now, does this mean we perfectly know a creature's age just by reading the changing rates of some parts of their DNA? No, but it's certainly a lot better than trying to categorize them purely based on size or cutting off their eye stalks. Now, this is really important for these researchers to try and help manage and understand the lobsters in the region and how their populations are growing and changing. And it shows the difficulties of answering such a simple question as how old are you can be even harder when all physical signs of your aging can also be cast away like an old lobster shell. This is some great research published in Evolutionary Applications which highlights the challenges that scientists have to overcome just to quantify age and how DNA, in particular RDNA, can be used to help, to help understand just how old creatures are. using the DNA to understanding the genetic diversity of creatures. Genetic diversity is incredibly important for any population group. Too much diversity means there's probably a chance for different variations of species to occur to adapt to an ecological niche. Too little genetic diversity can lead to all kinds of problems within a population, making them susceptible to a range of problems. Uh, environmental adaption to be but one of them. So understanding the mechanisms that grow and shape and mold genetic diversity is really important. On land, it's easy to do this because we have distinct cohorts that we can track over time based on some physical location. And we can see the weather and the seasons and have lots of good records for how these things interact with each other. 
And thus we can understand how you can get one population on, say, an island and another population on another island. Now, these two populations on these islands won't interact with each other. So we know that they can then start to diverge from each other, but still be the same species. This kind of tracking of genetic diversity and variation amongst species is really useful for understanding the health of an ecosystem and a larger population. Now, that's great on land-based creatures, and once you start flying, well, that makes it a bit more complicated because of migration patterns, but when you're in the sea, well, it gets a lot harder because the range of travel for marine organisms is really, really far, and there can be populations that are connected to each other over vast vast distances. Now this is a problem if you're trying to design and maintain and sustainably manage a fish ecosystem, which is what fishery managers have to do all the time. If you want to try and keep your population healthy, well, there's a lot of things that might even be outside your control. And understanding the way in which your genetic stability changes in a region is incredibly important. Now, Researchers develop models again to try and do population genetic studies and compare them to some kind of theoretical expectation. Now, this is really difficult, really, really difficult for creatures that have a dispersive larvae. Because, well, dispersive larvae can be difficult to sample accurately, uh, at least the population perspective, but they can also spread and travel incredibly far. So you end up with really high genetic loads and that can get spread physically and temporally over time into crazy different spots, carried effectively in the ocean currents. Now, this is challenging because what researchers see in practice when they conduct surveys and samples is that, well, they we know that the larvae can be carried anywhere basically, well not quite anywhere, but many different places by the ocean currents. So that suggests that the population should be connected, right? But if you look at different regions, you can end up with these really strong single or couple of genetic groups. And effectively, you almost end up with like islands. Islands of genetics, of population groups with all similar genetics in the ocean. Now, the theory behind this is actually coined by, the term, by Johnson and Black as chaotic genetic patchiness. But another way to imagine it is like we talked about with islands at the start. Populations that all have similar genetic makeups scattered across the ocean. These islands of a certain type of this particular species. Now, as we said, this is really seen with larval species. But because larval species can also be sampled pretty easily too, by taking good samples from the water column, it gives scientists an opportunity to study this in detail. And that's what, exactly what researchers did off the coast of Antarctica, published in the journal Science Advance. Researchers from Biofield University and the British Antarctic Survey worked together. And lead author from this paper was David Vendrami, Lloyd Peck, Melody Clark, Bjarke Eldon, Michael Meredith, and Joseph Hoffman. And these researchers worked together looking at data from both 1999 and 2015 from nine locations across Antarctica. The researchers collected data basically from drift buoys, which gave them information about the ocean currents, and they combined this with water samples taken from various locations. Now, they could take all of this data and then combine it with actual modeling and analysis tools to understand exactly the strange, strange results that they saw. They turned their attention to the particular creature, the limpet called Nacella conchina. 
Now, they chose this particular limpet because, well, it's pretty populous in the region. And it's one of the most densely populated creatures in the Antarctic waters. You basically end up with 500 animals per square meter in some places, really just all squished in there. And the way in which this species breed is the females release millions of eggs into the water, which then those eggs sink to the bottom of the water column because they're negatively buoyant, then larvae eventually hatch after a gestation period, and then they can then swim back up higher up into the water column and to continue the rest of their life cycle. Now, when they took samples of genetic samples from across Antarctica, they kept seeing these genetic islands, which were present all across these different regions. Now, what this means is that populations have some similarity to each other, despite being physically really far away, almost on other sides of Antarctica. And it's like they're almost brothers and sisters and cousins, all, all packed tightly together in this family group, but not just in one spot, but in other spots. And the same kind of thing with a different family group scattered across the region. Which suggests that lots of these different population groups actually came from similar parent groups. So there was a small number of parents and the currents carry the larvae all together effectively from one location to another. So once the spawning season happens and these larva eggs hatch into larva, well, those larvae get carried by the ocean currents all to the same place. So the genetic population always gets moved to another island. And then that island is very similar from a genetics perspective to the parts that remain behind and weren't swept away by the currents. This is really interesting because it shows how the areas can be connected at the same time as being separate. And it helps researchers really understand this problem around how you end up with these really divergent areas. This particular mollusk gives a great example of isolating one particular case of the hypotheses to test out and helps them try to narrow down on possible causes. So this is some great research published in the journal Science Advantage, which helps outline how different species can get effectively islanded. One same population group can get moved to, altogether, swept away to a different location, creating a second, second subsequent population centre. This so-called islanding effect can happen in the water, just like it happens above the water, and helps explain how we can get close, densely related, but sort of genetic similar groups of a species over time. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From dating lobsters to figuring out how populations can be islanded across from different regions of the ocean. This week we found out lots of ways to use DNA to help us understand and track populations of ocean creatures over time. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.